Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, investing with Africa for Africa, listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's good to have you with us. Here's the deal. It's a deal being proposed by ESCOM, Kulupasiwe, on uh, Twitter this evening, saying ESCOM is currently not load shedding, but the risk still remains high. The next three hours from 6 to 9 p.m. remain critical. Electricity usage generally rises sharply during this period. Please continue to use electricity efficiently so we can avoid the risk of load shedding. So if you still uh, have a pool pump that comes on between 6 and 9, and you shouldn't because you should know by now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inconsiderate thing to do. Go switch it off. Your geezer, go yeah, make sure that it's not going to come on between six and nine. Do yourself a favor, do the country a favor, do everybody a favor and just suck up a little less electricity during this peak period. Whatever the reasons are for load shedding, however angry you might be at ESCOM for its failure to ensure that we've got uh, a solid power supply, whatever. Don't, don't let yourself get caught up in that. Just uh, go, and, uh, go and cut every watt that you possibly can. Okay, fast back question for you this evening. What John Malkovich film are you highly unlikely ever to see? John Malkovich has made a film. You're not likely ever to see it. So what's the point? I'll explain later in our fast fact on 31702 and 31567. Uh, drop us an SMS this evening. It's a lovely story, by the way. Uh, we'll talk the currency. We'll talk about uh, what's going on with trade around the world this evening. Those are big stories. Lee Kasumba in Ethiopia. We'll also catch up with the uh, wage offer that ESCOM has tabled. 4.7% to workers who went on strike over 0% last week. Andy Rice with some fabulous heroes and a nasty zero. And the science of the Mining Charter 3, the third version of the Mining Charter. Let's have a look at that this evening here on The Money Show. 702 The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. With the RAND plummeting to its lowest levels in more than six months. I'm just waiting for social media trolls to start telling us how much better we were off under Jacob Zuma. It's only really a question of time before that happens. John Cairns is strategist at Rand Merchant Bank. He watches the currency closely, and it's an ugly view of the currency, John Cairns. Tell me what's going on. Uh, what's going on, Bruce, is global fears about Fed tightening trade between China and the U.S. and all emerging markets being sold off. And is a little bit of the rumophoria wearing off as well. So that's all contributing to the RAND again being the high beat to play on the global economy and coming under pressure. Well, those vulnerabilities, there's some, and again, at the risk of being technical, some reports today saying the RAND is deeper in oversold territory than it has been in two and a half years. In other words, it's fallen too far too fast. Yes, I think so. I agree with that sentiment. Um, we've still got some more potential bad news later this week with our CPI figure and current account, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the RAND recovers um, going going into July or even at the end of this month. I think it's due for a bit of a pullback. 
Uh, yeah, and the, the thing, the, the currency is extraordinarily vulnerable. It makes everything more expensive in South Africa. We know uh, so many of the tales about South Africa. Is it possible to suggest sort of nowadays, considering that we have a slightly more positive local economic environment for how long, I don't know, but we've got it, um, versus what's happening globally? Uh, yes, yes and no, Bruce. So, <laughs> the way I think about it is early in the year when you started to get this pressure in global markets, the RAND held up very well. So we were just middle of the pack. We are just another currency, which for the RAND represents our performance because usually we that high beta play on the global economy. But um, going through May, coming into June, sentiment seems to have shifted. It was particularly that very poor first quarter GDP number that I think altered the market's sensitivity. And so from going from being just another currency, we resumed our place as the high beta and suddenly we are reacting a lot more. So yes, the good global fundam- good local fundamentals did shield us for a little while, but not really at the moment. I think we need to restore some confidence, get the economy going again before investors give us the benefit of the doubt. Aaron Mutsuladi and Eyewitness News just a few moments ago talking about unveiling the um, the two new draft laws for NHI and forecasting a hurricane of protest. That sort of stuff along with a mining charter that is fairly contentious. Um, do they help? Um, yeah, you look, look there, there, there's lots of issues we need to sort out. The, 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 the health issue, it's from an economist perspective and a ratings perspective, it's really about the extent of government spending and whether it's affordable. As I'm sure you know, Bruce, government spending is under a lot of pressure. The ratings still remain under pressure. So there's no wriggle room. There's no extra money in the kitty to go out and spend on, on new projects. So, so yes, any further additional fiscal spending pretty hard to know how it's going to be funded and would be negative. The mining charter remains a concern for the international investors we speak to, as well as obviously the, the land issue. That Those are the major issues overhanging investor sentiment. Uh, so yes, the government's got a long way to go and in, improve in, in itself before we regain investor confidence, I think. Oh, and one of the big problems that Sir Ramaphosa has got as president of the ANC and as president of the country is that he's like the push-me-pull-you in Dr. Doolittle. He's being dragged in both directions. Somehow he's got to be expected to be fixing problems within the ANC or at the same time fixing problems within the country. Um, he seems incapable of being able to outsource either of those functions right now. Yes. Now, they, they, look, they, they, there's a lot to fix, I think. Um, from from an economist perspective, we're hoping that the, the economy will pick up and most Importantly, the government will keep to its fiscal targets. We just can't afford further, further overspending. And of course, then there's lots of underlying reforms that, that need to get done. Um, I think I agree with your general sentiment, Bruce, which is that there's a lot to be done and it's not going to happen quickly. I think this is a long road we have to travel. John Ken, thank you very much. He is the strategist at Rand Merchant Bank on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Another big factor that's impacting markets at the moment, and we saw it go tear through Asia this morning, tear through Europe, came through South Africa's markets and pushed down the JSE very sharply on the day, uh, and also caused the Dow Jones Industrial Average to move into the red for the year to date. Donald McKay is the director at XA International Trade Advisors. This thing of trade wars, it's more 
talk about trade wars, which has the same sort of effect as a trade war, in that it causes everybody to panic about the fact that the status quo in international trade, Donald, is going to be disrupted. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly we've seen lots of unpredictability and this is this is never a good thing for people either trading or in fact uh, making investments. Now, so tell me please what the state of play is right now in terms of global trade. Are we at war with each other as trading nations or are we just talking about a war? Yeah, I, I think the first shots have, have definitely been fired and they, they seem to really come from three big issues. Uh, the one is the U.S. wanting to renegotiate the terms of NAFTA, which is the trade agreement that allows most goods to move duty-free between the North American countries. Uh, coupled with that, we have this Section 232 investigation, which uh, South Africa was also a victim to, which looked at, at steel and aluminium, and that resulted in a 25% duty on steel and a 15% duty on aluminium, affecting about three and a half billion rand a year's worth of steel trade to the U.S. from South Africa and about five and a half billion worth of aluminium. And then more recently, and, and perhaps one that potentially could even open an opportunity for us, uh, is the latest Section 301 investigation against China, which, which deals with the U.S.'s concern about China's uh, somewhat questionable intellectual property practices. Um, and all of these put together seem to be the, the really the, the, the big ripples that are moving through trade at the moment and, of course, resulting in some retaliation. Uh, so certainly the position is, is quite worrying. I, I think the war is underway, or at least the first few skirmishes are. Uh, what, what is the ultimate consequence of this? You put up your tariffs on the stuff you send me. I then put up the tariffs on the stuff I send you. You then up your tariffs. I up my tariffs on even more products. And suddenly we get into a position where nobody in either of our countries can afford to buy anything that is imported. Yeah, well, it, that is the immediate effect. And, of course, the world has been here before. So in the period before the 1940s, uh, before we had the creation of, of GATT and later the WTO, we didn't have proper rules to govern this. And the net effect of that is that duties move up, that inflation moves up, and if you play it to its logical conclusion, eventually we're all just producing for our own markets. And that, of course, is, is just not good for anybody. And that's certainly the position we're facing if, if this continues on this trajectory. I mean, this, this plays into Donald Trump's America first narrative. He was uh, grumpy about jobs being taken away from the United States, regardless of the economics and the sense it makes in order to manufacture. Your, you, know, you can design your iPhone in California, you can design your Crocs in Boulder, Colorado, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper to make them in other parts of the world. Are, do we run the risk of, of that sort of common sense activity running out of steam? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. So it is it, it is very worrying because the, the logical conclusion, again, of, of this behavior is not only that, that trade doesn't move, but intellectual property also tends to, to not move very well. Um, design is, is limited by the size of the market you can sell into. And if the only market you can sell into is your own, then the incentive to, to build new and interesting things for, for the global market is, is significantly reduced. And that sets back human evolution. It sets back progress, the sort of post-World War II consensus. It, it does all of that sort of stuff. It actually sets back the globe very significantly. Should we go down that route? 
Is there a way of elegantly avoiding um, shooting ourselves in the foot globally as we, we seem to intent upon doing? Yeah, I, I, I simply don't know because Donald Trump, I guess, is, is the, the real wild card that nobody knows what he is going to do. And because the U.S. just wields such enormous economic influence on the rest of the world, it is extremely difficult to, to not in some way react to what the U.S. does. And so I think even though it is worrying that we see the retaliation, it, it's very hard to see what the alternatives are because to simply allow the U.S. to continue doing what they're doing is simply going to encourage them to keep on doing it. So it, it's certainly a, a fairly grim picture we're looking at at the moment. Donald Mackay, thank you. He is Director of XA International Trade Advisors. Deep concern about the state of trade, and that's why it matters to you. Uh, the iPhone that you buy, the um, the Crocs, yeah, I'm sure some of you do, the Crocs that you buy, are those things that have been manufactured in China for so long, um, courtesy of the, the, the expansion of global trade. That is all what is at risk now with this talk of trade war. Suddenly you, you get huge tariffs and levies being lopped onto everything that's imported and exported around the world and and that trade activity slows down and it suddenly becomes considerably more expensive it pushes up inflation and suddenly the cost of everything rises and we go back to an era of dysfunction the 1970s hyperinflation that sort of nonsense and it can be so easily avoided the money show the markets well, markets were all full today. I mean, we've spoken about currencies and we've spoken about trade wars, and those are some of the reasons behind why the markets were as awful as they were. There wasn't too much corporate news about, but Wayne McCurry, he is from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. He's in Cape Town this evening. A 2%, call it 2%, if you like, 983-point drop on the JSE. Nothing to be sneezed at, Mr. McCurry? No, not at all, Bruce. I mean, it's been going on like this for a while now. But I think, personally, we're reaching some sort of inflection point because I truly hope, and maybe it's clutching at straws and maybe it's been overly <laughs> optimistic, that common sense will prevail in these trade wars. And if that is the case, stock markets worldwide, but in particular South African-orientated shares in our stock market, could actually bounce very strongly. A couple of them are cheap at this level. My great, my grandfather used to say, um, you know, there's nothing common about common sense. And that's the mm. big risk we face, unfortunately. Yes. Yes, it is. And, of course, asking politicians to act responsibly in the good, for the good of the country and not their own personal political ends or gains is, of course, maybe uh, a bridge too far. Quite possibly. But, look, I mean, valuations are compelling. The currency yes. has weakened very, very sharply. I mean, you always, you always talk, uh, you know, you always talk very good common sense around our currency. We hope uh, so. And our currency at six-and-a-half-month lows, um, it does it's raise... It, it is cheap, but it does raise some risks in, for the economy if yeah. we don't see a recovery yes. come, come through soon. Well, look, the only positive about this particular bout of weakness in the currency and in the stock market was we didn't do it to ourselves. This is a purely international event. It's got very, very little, if anything, to do with South Africa. And hopefully that does settle down a little bit. I mean, I think President Trump's tactics are shoot first, ask questions later. And hopefully he sticks to his negotiation tactics and backs down. But we will have to see, because I can rest assured, if a trade war does develop further from what we're seeing now, it is extremely bad for everything, but particularly bad for emerging markets. 
Now, tell me, please, your views on uh, Breit's results today. They came out. They were awful. The the net asset value of Breit has been slashed. Yet the market uh, saw the share price up 3% on the day. They were awful, but less awful than the market expected. Probably correct. Look, they put the net asset value at 57 rand a share, which is – the problem in Breit is a company called New Look in the UK that is technically under curatorship or insolvent. And – it doesn't look as though they're going to have to put more money into it, but that is still debatable. Now, the share trades at a 30% discount to that 57 rand net asset value, and New Look is valued at zero in their books. The question is, should it be, mad, should it be valued at minus zero? In other words, you're going to have to put more capital into it. But the rest of the businesses, Virgin Active did particularly well, and Premier Foods also had a very good second half. So the other businesses look good, but they didn't pay a dividend out was obviously trying to preserve net asset value. And for the first time since they've listed, the three-year return is negative, whereas their stated goal is a three-year return over of more than 15%. So clearly, New Look has been a dramatic uh, problem for them. I mean, and, and it is, it's, it's bad news for, for everybody who's invested in Breit, but it's also more bad news for Christo Visa. Yes. Uh, and anybody who followed, I mean, there was advice at one time that if you just followed the smart money, if you just followed yeah. Brian Joffin, you invested in his company, and you followed the Ruperts and you followed Christo Visa, you would make money. You, and it held, right. it held true for so long. But, I mean, the trouble is, most people who followed Christo Visa would be wiped out by now. Correct, yes. And I mean, Christos, Christos was very open about the way he invested. Now, he believed in something. He was in their boots and all that. You know, yep. He didn't believe in well-diversified, balanced portfolios. If he believed in something, he would go for it with, with, with all the money he had and all the money he could borrow as well. And clearly that works when it works, but when it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And we're seeing it not working at the moment. Wayne mm. McCurry, thank you from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Horrible day for markets around the globe. The Dow in the red for the first time this year, in negative territory year on year. Well, probably the year so far, rather, let me put it that way. The JSE deep in the red for the year so far, 56,250. Nearly a 1,000 points down on the day as the market sold off very, very strongly. Gold shares were up. Brayton PSG moved a little bit stronger. So I asked you a little earlier. I said in our fast fact question, what John Malkovich film are you unlikely ever to see? And a couple of you are on the right path. You say, ooh, it's the one about the 100-year-old brandy. Well, there is a connection to 100-year-old brandy, but it's not about the brandy. Well, I don't know if it's about the brandy because I'm not going to be at the premiere. I don't think. Um, it's written and, and star, It's written by and stars John Malkovich. It's directed by a guy called Robert Rodriguez. And it's due for release, this movie, 100 Years, on the 18th of November, 2115. Now, the pair teamed up with Remy Martin and it's Louis XIII Cognac, which takes 100 years to make, so you're on the right track. But the film is being kept in a high-tech safe behind bulletproof glass that'll open automatically on the 18th of November, 2115, the day of the film's premiere. 1,000 guests from around the world, including Malkovich and Rodriguez, have received a pair of invitation tickets made of metal to attend the premiere but they're expected to put those in their wills for their descendants because, boy, if I don't have a chance of getting there, John Malkovich sure as anything doesn't have a chance of getting to the premiere of his own movie. At least he knows what the plot line is. 
but nobody else is going to know the plot line. Malkovich and Rodriguez keeping this very close to their chests. But yeah, the answer, the John Malkovich film that you're unlikely ever to see, unless you hate John Malkovich and never want to see any of his movies, of course, but the John Malkovich movie you're unlikely to ever see is called 100 Years, due for release in 2115. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. Uh, Jenica Lighty is coming up in just a bit. We're going to talk to about ESCOM and this new 4.7% wage offer. Is it going to be enough to uh, get ESCOM away from the brink or is it going to take it even deeper over the edge? I wonder about that. We'll talk about that this evening here on The Money Show. On the next Money Show, join me to talk to Paul Rubin. Uh, he is the owner and a founder of a company in Cape Town called Nude Foods. It's not nearly as disgusting as it sounds. It's a plastic-free grocery store. Now, Woolies is committed to getting rid of a lot of its plastic, but these are guys that are actually doing it on a small scale. Fair enough. We're going to find out how they do it. And Business Unusual with Colin Cullis. This week, the unusual business of phosphorus. It's a chemical element without which there would be no food, nude or not. Africa Connected, your link to Africa's markets. Brought to you by Standard Bank. Moving forward. Hashtag Africa Connected. Lee Kasumba this evening on The Money Show. She is live for us in Addis Ababa with Africa Connected. Tell me about the city of Addis. Is it a, a heaving metropolis? Are there millions of people walking in the streets, taking taxis? What's, what's it like? So the city of, of, of Addis is, um, like you said, it's a heaving metropolis. There are so many people. The traffic jams here are crazy. Not as bad as Nairobi or Lagos, but, you know, <laughs> it is quite a, a mission to get around the city. And you have quite a lot of people moving about. They have yellow cabs. They've got blue cabs. And then they also have the trams um, that, that are in the city as well. So it, there is quite a lot happening in terms of the city and a lot of foot traffic um, that goes in and out um, on a daily around the city. How many people live in it? So this is the interesting thing, Bruce. Um, the last time a census was done, they said that there were 3 million people that lived there. But now, you know, um, people estimate that there's between 5 to 8 million people living um, in Addis, which is insane, you know. And, and obviously because it's become more industrialized, people have come through from other parts of the country into, into Addis, you know, to try and find, you know, to find a better life and to also get involved in all the development that is happening here. So... We're looking at about an average of five to eight million uh, people, but that number has not been confirmed. That's just the numbers that people are throwing around because the census has not been done in such a long time. I mean, we've seen large-scale urbanisation in South Africa, and one of the consequences of that is that a lot of housing becomes informal because people need a place to stay. They yeah. do what they can in order to secure uh, the health and well-being of their families as best they can. Do you see that sort of thing playing out in Addis as well? Yes, you do. So today we had uh, the opportunity to go to a school called Labawi School, Labawi School, sorry, and it's pretty much on the outskirts. So the best way I can describe it is if you think about the way four ways never used to exist, and now all yeah. of a sudden it's you know 
it's just about uh, uh, quite a big, large amount of people live there. So that's pretty much where the school is. There is, you're seeing that sort of development and it's a residential area. And prior to the school being there in 2013, it was pretty much, there was no one there. It was seen as the outskirts of Addis. Now, as you drive into um, the inner city a lot more, you know, um, and because of the numbers of people that have now moved into, um, moved into Addis, there is the, 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 in terms of government housing, there's a waiting list of 1 million people. There's a waiting list of 1 million people. People. And, you know, government has had built some apartments initially, and they only built apartments for 160,000 people. So 160,000 apartments, sorry. So it is becoming quite a, a situation. And, you know, but this is what we see as a city starts to grow and to develop really fast. Um, it's impacting people a lot. And even um, our, our fixer who was taking us around, he spoke about how when he initially bought, um, when he initially used to rent property, he was um, he, he would pay 600 brr a month which is about 291 rand give or take and now you know in in the last few in the last two or three years it's skyrocket, skyrocketed to 10,000 per a month you know um, which is 486,000 rand thereabouts I mean when we think about the numbers in the South African context those numbers don't translate as being high but when you look at how how you know it's pretty much tripled pretty you know more than tripled sorry the numbers in terms of what people are paying for rent and also um, although um, although Ethiopia is one of the fastest fastest growing economies in the world, they are the fastest growing economy because they started from a fairly low base, you know, so that's something that we have to keep in mind. Well, when I mean, we speak about, uh, we look at Ethiopia and we look at it as a, as a potential aircraft hub for Africa. We look at the location so close to the Middle East. It's a really nice sort of stop-off point for anybody coming from Asia to into Africa. You can get really good distribution from there. But I suppose every, every upside has a downside too. It's not, by, by no means perfect. No, not at all. So we, we spoke to quite a few. We spoke to somebody in the leather industry today, you know, and he mentioned that, you know, because, you know, if you look at Ethiopia, it is landlocked. So this this causes a lot of problems. Firstly, in terms of security, and if you look at some of the surrounding, you know, neighboring countries, South Sudan, Somalia, and everything, whatever happens in those particular regions directly affects Ethiopia. So in terms of security, it is a huge issue. And this is part of the reason why the, the new prime minister is making a really big deal about stepping in and ensuring that there's security around, you know, around Ethiopia because it obviously directly affects them. So them being landlocked makes a huge, it's a huge issue. And secondly, you know, the fact that they are landlocked, um, um, although in, in Ethiopia, the government does give a lot of incentives or you don't have to pay import or, or export taxes at certain points, you know, in different industries, like in the leather industry, there still is no way of getting the goods outside. Um, you know, you can't just, uh, sorry, my mistake, you can't really just go to the to the edge of Ethiopia and you're by the port. You know, you have to go through Djibouti, which is now being described as being the Singapore sort of um, of, of this particular region. So, and to get from Addis to Djibouti is about a thousand kilometers and that's by, by truck, you know, sometimes and sometimes it's by rail as well. So these are some of the challenges, you know, it just means that it costs a lot more for people to be able to take their goods, um, you know, to make sure that their goods are able to get exported and to also import goods in. So that's what raises the prices um, a little bit in this particular region. Lee Kasumba, thank you so much. Lee from uh, Addis Ababa this evening with Africa Connected. Lee is the host of Africa State of Mind. We've sent her on her travels. If you want to learn more about those travels, and it's fascinating, go to africaconnected.co.za. Sana Bank calls Africa home and drives her growth, combining their strong African presence with global capabilities. Sana Bank supports businesses that need a banking partner who knows Africa. Sana Bank has partnered with 
with Cape Talk and 702 on Africa Connected to give you in-depth, first-hand insights into Africa's diverse markets and the innovative solutions that come from Africa. Standard Bank, moving forward. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. ESCOM, after saying 0% increase to anybody who works at ESCOM, then faced uh, strike action and faced then the uh, various acts of sabotage. And now all of us face the risk, of course, on a daily basis at the moment of load shedding. Today, ESCOM saying 4.7%. That's what we'll offer. 4.7%. Wage negotiations between the power utility and three unions resuming today. Jen Nicolaides, I would just use reporter on this story. It's better than zero, but nowhere near the 15% that unions are demanding. Is it going to be good enough, Jenny Kalides? Oh, good afternoon, Bruce. I, I don't know if this will be good enough. Um, it's about 10% uh, less than what they were initially asking for. But we see that some of the u- unions have responded positively to it. Um, they say for the year 2018, the offer on the table at the moment is 4.7% and an inflation-based increase every year thereafter for the next four years. So they said that they are currently debating this offer and they'll give a joint response in the morning to ESCOM management when the second day of wage talks resume on Wednesday. What I do find quite surprising, though, is that just a couple of weeks ago when we were speaking to ESCOM, they said they simply did not have the money. And we know this. They've been battling financially. Um, They haven't kind of got the the increases that they've been looking for from NURSA, um, saying it'll just have to be 0%. And now we hear from the unions that 4.7% has been put down as their opening offer. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see over the next two days uh, what the final agreement will be. Do we have any indication as to what sort of quid pro quo there needs to be for ESCOM to make this 4.7% offer if uh, unions are agreeing to a headcount reduction, which we're led to believe is essential in an overstaffed and overstuffed parastatal that delivers less electricity today than it did 10 years ago? It would make sense that those who stay can perhaps get a little bit more, but it requires some to go. That's right. And I think that this is a question that's been put to ESCOM um, from the beginning of the year, really, when we had uh, the change in leadership, the change in the board, um, and now the new public enterprises minister, Pravin Gordon, and talks about retrenchment have been on the line for several months now. So it's unclear if this means that perhaps, yes, we can give you um, an increase now, but this will result in retrenchment. ESCOM hasn't said that at this particular point. Um, And and we do know that ESCOM, according to the union, to release the statements uh, this evening, they say that all other demands um, in terms of housing alliances, uh, allowances, etc., that will remain unchanged and will not be improved, definitely not for this year. So they're remaining steadfast on that. Um, but going forward, we are just unsure at this particular stage how ESCOM will even manage a 4.7% increase. Um, perhaps the reason why they're not making any public pronouncements on their offers at this particular stage. How seriously is ESCOM being taken? I mean, to go from zero to, okay, four, four, four and a half. All right, we said zero last week, and then you threw stuff at us, and now we say four and a half. But that's our final offer. I mean, it just it, it feels like bad negotiating. Uh, absolutely, and I, I, and that's one of the reasons why the unions say that ESCOM has not been taking these wage talks seriously. Um, but also, I don't think have been taking their demand seriously from the get-go because they've said that they cannot simply um, go uh, this year without 
some sort of increase, that they'll negotiate that 15%. It's, a, it's quite an ask to ask for 15% in these uh, economic times, uh, but that they were willing to negotiate. And ESCOM had put out a statement saying that though they will be cutting salary increases altogether. So I don't know how the, the unions are going to respond to this 4.7%. They might be asking for a little bit more. This is their opening offer. Jen Nicolaides, that's the risk. Uh, Eyewitness News reporter Jen Nicolaides. If you're in Cape Town, um, the Cape Talk SMS line, debris being placed on the road into incoming before Mew Way. New Way. Before New Way. Um, it's Mew Way. And, uh, yeah, so if you're coming in there, protesters placing debris on the highway, please be very, very careful. If you can avoid the area, please do. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, investing with Africa for Africa, listing at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on the 26th of June. Old Mutual, do great things. Andy Rice standing by with Heroes and Zeros. Uh, Africa Business Report this evening. Rona Kapoldis uh, looking forward to joining us a little bit later. And then it is all about the science of the mining charter. If you are involved in mining in any way, if you're a supplier in the mining industry, if you live in a community at a mine, if you're a mine worker and, and you want to have some sort of input on the mining charter and give us your perspectives on it, I really would appreciate um, your participation this evening. We're talking all about mining and the mining charter um, coming up at half past seven this evening. Sometimes the flood of bad news can be really quite overwhelming. Don't you sometimes feel like, Geez, can we just have a break, guys? Stop shouting at each other. Stop throwing things. Stop stealing stuff. Stop undermining each other. Just let's get on the same train. Johnny Clegg put it to me once. See that name drop? That was quite good. Johnny Clegg once put it to me. He says, like, I said to him, why are you still singing and why are you still doing this? He says, I pull a long train. And Johnny Clegg had this real sense of he, he was responsible for the lives of so many people who worked with him, whether they be people who worked with him on the road or whether they worked in studio with him, whatever it might have been. Um, and uh, we, we just we seem to lose sight of the fact that each one of us pulls a long train in South Africa, that we've got a far bigger responsibility than just to ourselves. But that's an aside. It was good today to see that Anosh Singh is going to be given a chance to prove his innocence to the industry body that governs whether or not he'll still be allowed to call himself a chartered accountant. That's great. Uh, Saika formally laying charges against the former chief financial officer at ESCOM. He's accused of helping the Guptas and their chums fleece the power provider. We see the debt levels. We see the fragility of the ESCOM power network. And not saying accused of failing to comply with relevant laws and regulations, failing to avoid conduct he knew or should have known might discredit the accountancy profession. Now, this is the accountancy profession trying to restore its own image. And uh, not saying has got 21 days to respond to these charges. After that, they'll go for adjudication before a professional conduct committee. And that committee's got huge power. It can caution him can reprimand him, it can pose a fine, I think about as much as 250,000 rand. The one thing it can't do is throw anybody in jail, but it can remove the CASA title, which is a big thing. If you're a chartered accountant, you work very hard to get that title. And if that's taken away from you, then you're just a book. 
bookkeeper, not just a bookkeeper, because bookkeepers are important people. But here is a situation where you lose that CASA, the big bucks, the access to the big bucks. And that's a big deal. And so many chartered accountants in South Africa want examples to be made of guys who have let down the profession. You look at KPMG, they're getting it in the neck everywhere at the moment. Certainly in South Africa, um, the, the firm is, is half of what it was at its peak. Um, but now the quality of audit work in the UK is also being challenged, work that KPMG has done in the UK. The UK accounting watchdog, the Financial Reporting Council, says there's been a deterioration in the work that KPMG has performed for Britain's biggest publicly traded companies. And it says that KPMG is not sceptical enough in the work that it takes on. We could have told you that. I don't know how much time the UK took to get that, but quite seriously. I mean, even in the UK, KPMG is being accused of not thinking things through and doing the job properly. One wonders just how much longer that particular brand is going to be sitting above accounting offices. Sassman today um, also announced that it was switching from KPMG to PwC. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Andy Rice, the branding and advertising expert. You feeling all right, Andy? You're seeming very chipper and very positive and having two uh, positives for us, two heroes for us this evening. I'm feeling a little bit wary about this. Are you feeling all right? I'm feeling fine. I'm just uh, scared to death of being beaten up by you on air every week, so I thought I'll try and pick a couple that he might like. Oh, okay. There's a challenge for you. You know I'm a tough I'm a tough taskmaster when it comes to, to advertising. But there are two in the financial services sector, and so often financial services sector adverts are so busy, T's and C's applying and past performances, no guarantee of future performance, and all of the important regulatory stuff, that they kind of lose the joy of delivering a message yeah that's right bruce um it's quite a popular sport to knock radio advertisements in south africa and say that you know we really aren't doing very well and we all talk about that and then suddenly uh, we pull back some grand prix awards from Cannes, which is actually happening this week uh, and in the south of france and uh, i hope we really do well there and, and we have done so well in radio that that the the really good ones stand out because the, the dross, I'm afraid, is everywhere. Uh, but you're right, two of these are from a category that we don't normally associate with high levels of creativity from the financial services category. But both of them at least have taken the trouble to look for a bit of an idea, to look for a narrative that has some relevance, but yet is distinctive and, and one hopes competitive. So I, I think we'll probably end up playing both of them. But let's start with, with uh, this one from 10X Investments. At 10X Investments, we've always believed in the difference 1% can make. For example, it's the difference between hot water and steam, one of the most powerful forces on Earth. That's why it generates almost 90% of the world's electricity. And when it's tamed, it makes a perfect flat white. So next time you're waiting for your barista to do his thing, ask yourself, if just 1% turns water into steam, what could it do for your retirement? Join the one percenters at 10x.co.za where paying less than 1% in fees can mean 60% more money at retirement. Sign up before 30 June and you'll pay no fees at all for six months. 10x Investments is an authorized FSP. T's and C's apply. I can smell the coffee. I can taste the coffee. I, I can feel the, the foam sort of sitting on my bottom lip. And I'm so distracted, Andy Rice, by this glorious, sensuous experience Oh, it's a financial services advert. Why do you like it? 
Well, I think that they've taken the trouble to dig around for a, for a, a way of explaining what their point of difference is. They are saying that in the long run, over a, a person's working lifetime, um, having to pay more than uh, uh, 1% in fees is likely to seriously uh, contract the amount that you'll get out at the end of your, of your savings. And, and by using the metaphor of, of steam, only one degree separates it from hot water to the power of steam. I think that's just a, a refreshing and clear way of explaining a financial offering in non-financial terms. Okay, so that one gets uh, gets the thumbs up from you. That that gets a, a hero. The other ad that you want to talk about in the hero space is also about index investing, which is interestingly enough interesting enough uh, because here you've got these guys who are competing very aggressively against managed investments, and um, they're coming up with the goods, certainly from an advertising perspective. Yeah, this one's from Satrix, uh, who uh, uh, offer products that, that, that are tracker products primarily on on the JSE. Um, and they had to get over the, the fact that it's what they call a passive fund, which I think, Bruce, you know mar- far more about that than me, but I understand that a passive fund is one that follows rather than leads. And they, again, they said, how can we explain this in terms that don't get us bogged down in the vocabulary of banking, the vocabulary of saving and investments? And uh, I think they did it quite well. Take a listen to this one from Satrix. This is the lovely Geococcus californianus, a long-legged cuckoo better known as a roadrunner. It also kills and eats rattlesnakes. Get the passive fund that's not as passive as you think. The Satrix Balanced Index Fund is a top-performing balanced fund. Visit satrix.co.za. Satrix, own the market. Satrix is an authorized FSP and approved manager in terms of Cisco. A schedule of fees and charges can be obtained from the manager. I mean, it's wonderful, Andy. I mean, that, uh, I'm, of the two, if I had to pick one, I would pick your second, um, yeah. the Satrix ad. It, it sort of takes you down a path and then shocks you. And you go, oh, hold on a second. Um, uh, I like it. I like, I like the strategy behind it. Yes, here we have the tranquility of a, of a David Attenborough type. <laughs> See the, the, the stealthy camera work in the background as it sneaks up on this bird that we all you know, really quite like. Roadrunner is a cartoon character, Roadrunner, and you're told it's a cuckoo. That also makes you think nicely about it. And then wham, it turns out to be a rattlesnake killer. And it's not, as they say, as passive as you might expect. And that's the metaphor the, that they're transferring over to their own fund, which is a passive fund, saying that one's not quite as passive as you might think as well. But what's so interesting is neither of these adverts, neither of these campaigns is passive at all. And both 10X and Satrix are in the passive investing space. It's quite interesting how they are coming and fighting their corner very, very aggressively. Yeah, I think I'll do well. I don't think either of them will be bringing trophies home from Cannes this week, but I think they're, they're definitely raising the overall standard of advertising on radio in South Africa. Why will neither of these bring home trophies from Cannes? They're creative, they're smart, they're taking traditionally dry subjects and humanising them quite nicely. Well, the competition is so uh, immense in Cannes that um, you'll almost certainly find that some rather uh, unorthodox ads will win. And that's that's my one criticism of some of the winners that we've had in the past from South Africa, is that they are ads that very few of us actually heard on air, even though you have to apply to them to qualify to enter. But they're often made for an express purpose, which could well be to win awards. Ah, but that's so cynical. Who would possibly do that in the advertising industry? How important are awards anyway, Andy? Oh, they are important, actually, and I'm a great fan of awards um, because what they do is they um, they give recognition where sometimes it's not a great uh, industry for, for recognizing uh, people's potential. Um, they um, 
they attract uh, good staff to, to creatively awarded agencies. So if you are um, an agency that has a, a, a track record in, in, in scooping the, the ironmongery, then the chances are people are going to want to work for you and you'll have a, a pick of the, of the best. So standards are raised. Um, yeah, I think awards are, are, are very good. I, some awards better than others. I like the effectiveness awards and I like the pure creative awards. Some of the rather more obscure ones perhaps are struggling to make their mark. Before people think you've lost your edge and you've just gone nice and given out two heroes, we better get a zero. Well, this uh, is actually a, a two zeros as well, in effect. There's oh. one issue and it's, um, it's two of the largest advertisers in the country slugging it out. Um, and in my view, getting involved in, in playground uh, squabbles, which do un, un, neither of them any good at all. The most unedifying site of MTN and Vodacom arguing about whose network is South Africa's best. With one brand, Vodacom, using research into customer satisfaction to say that they're the best, and MTN uh, leaning on their technology, which has been voted the best uh, connectivity network. You know, you, 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 you pay your money and you take your choice. I, I, I really think it's quite silly of them to spend literally hundreds of thousands of rands, full-color, full-page ads in the Sunday Times, when actually, truth be told, the way that we decide between networks is actually got very little to do with the network. Most people, I think they would agree, if you asked how you ended up with the particular network you're with, it might be past experience, it might be word of mouth in the media, it might be recommendation from someone you trust, it could be just a very good deal on that month. Or it could be conversations online, uh, perhaps even nothing more than the nearest shop. And here we have these guys slugging it out, as I say, spending huge amounts of money just to try and claim that they are South Africa's best network. Andy Rice, thank you very much. Branding and advertising expert Andy Rice. The Zero this evening stopped the childish playground pranks. MTN and Vodacom, that is the criticism from Andy Rice this evening. But two heroes tonight, one for 10x investments and one's for Satrix, the balanced fund, about the roadrunner that kills snakes. Lovely advertising on the radio. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Ronald Capaldus is director at Signal Risk with the Africa Business Report on the line to us from London this evening. This global trade war, this escalation of trade war and the rhetoric and the consequences for markets and for currencies, Ronak, um, how big is this impact going to be on our on our continent? Yeah, I mean, pretty big, Bruce. You know, there's a famous African proverb, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And unfortunately, in this case, we are the collateral damage. We are the, the, the grass. Uh, we've seen massive market sell-offs. You've seen currencies depreciate. You've seen debt servicing costs spike as a result of this. And even though there's no real direct effect, because we don't produce vast quantities of aluminum and steel in a lot of countries, the indirect effects are, are quite significant. In, you know, for the better part of last year, we were in this Goldilocks economy, not too hot, not too cold, uh, pretty benign outlook, which was good for the developed world, good for emerging markets. I think that masked a lot of the, the vulnerabilities. Now, you know, fast forward a little bit, and with this global trade war theme uh, and risk aversion and uncertainty taking root, uh, we're subject to, to contagion, we're su- subject to this kind of Cinderella economy where the clock strikes 12 and suddenly we're exposed. And the, the reality is that there are significant second and third round effects through the interest rate uh, in, in the U.S., through the U.S. dollar, and through commodity prices. Uh, and, you know, more importantly, uncertainty is never good for emerging markets, uh, and we don't operate in a vacuum, and I think that's, that's the big takeout.
Yeah, so concerns there, of course. So does it uh, destabilize this big drive across this continent of ours? We keep talking about the fourth industrial revolution, about the opportunities and the risks that it may, may bring. Should we be worried about the state of the fourth industrial revolution on this continent? So that's an interesting question. And uh, I was in Rwanda last week at the African Innovation Summit where this was, was a really dominant theme. And I guess the, the answer depends on whether you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. Um, and, you know, the optimist will argue that it, it offers a great opportunity to leapfrog, like Africa did with M-Pesa. You move from a rudimentary stage of development to something really advanced, and that's driven by necessity and you become market leaders in mobile banking, for example, or that we simply don't have the skills and we're going to lag behind the, the rest of the world with these technological advances. So, I mean, I think you also need to view this in the context of the continent's young population where we need to create jobs. We've got 450 million people who are going to come into the workforce in the next 20 years. And at the same time, you've got this dichotomy where on the one hand, you've got the, the, the view that artificial intelligence, robotics, and machine learning are going to take all our jobs, yet in many countries we can't keep lights on, we can't name streets, and we, and we can't solve basic sanitation issues. So how do we reconcile this uh, is, is a big policy dilemma. And uh, quite frankly, I think we're, we're behind the curve. Yeah, and that's perhaps the most damning issue for the African continent is how little of a threat this fourth industrial revolution actually poses for now, it may take a lot of business away from us, and maybe that makes us more vulnerable. But certainly on a day-to-day basis dealing on the continent, we are behind the curve. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the reality is that we need all hands on deck for this. We need governments to craft innovative policy. We need the private sector to invest. And most importantly, we need the skills to, to make sure that we, we are creating a young workforce that's fit for purpose and that's going to be relevant so that this revolution doesn't bypass them. Yeah, I mean, there will also, I mean, as a country as South Africa, and you know South Africa well, um, are we losing ground in this competition for the gateway to Africa? In the last couple of weeks, I've met and uh, chatted to the chairman of Kenya Airways, and they want to be the hub for African air travel. And um, we see Ethiopian taking such a strong stance, and that's where Lika Sumba is this week. And um, they are busy putting in a pitch, basically, to become this hub for Africa. It just feels like South Africa's losing ground faster and faster. So this is a very interesting and intriguing kind of contest, and we're seeing a lot of competition and jockeying for this position. So South Africa remains the kind of front runner by virtue of the size and sophistication of its economy, but we've lost a lot of ground over the past few years. You know, we've had policy uncertainty. We have had uncertainty around things like the mining charter that's still unresolved. Uh, Bouts of xenophobia um, have compromised our standing with the rest of the continent. But it seems that under the Ramaphosa administration, there's, there's going to be a much more pragmatic approach to foreign policy. And I think hopefully we'll, we'll start to see some positive momentum on that front. But, you know, it's not just uh, South Africa that's, that's vying for this position. You know, you've, you've got Morocco, which was recently admitted to the, the African Union after a 30-year absence. Um, and they're looking to, to pivot towards the rest of the continent. Um, they've got comparative advantages in renewable energy in banking, in solar energy, uh, Islamic finance as well. So that's an intriguing subplot, you know, between the Arab world, Europe and Africa. Uh, then you've got Mauritius, which is marketing itself as a financial hub and has capitalized on a lot of South Africa's deficiencies. 
Uh, Nairobi's coming coming through as a fintech hub, and it's got the digital infrastructure and connectivity um, and innovation that that we lack in South Africa. And then Dubai, just from a from a sophistication, competitiveness, and connectivity um, perspective, even though it's not in Africa, is is emerging also as a as a gateway for for many companies with an African portfolio. So uh, it's intriguing, but I think there's an opportunity here for South Africa wrestled back uh, a lot of the the lost ground and to use foreign policy um, as an economic stimulus in in the next few months and years. Uh, and so much of that foreign policy which has failed so badly in Zimbabwe, now we've had a change of, of political leadership in Zimbabwe uh, committing to free and fair elections. Those are just around the corner. Give me a sense of how this plays out. So we go to the polls on the 30th of July and, you know, there's a democratic deficit in Zimbabwe. Big question, are we going to get free and fair elections or is it going to be cosmetic? Um, I think, you know, it's the first election that you're going to without Robert Mugabe and Morgan Shangarai. So that's going to be an interesting subplot. But we've seen a few positives. Um, the opposition is being allowed to to assemble freely. They are being given media coverage by the state broadcaster. So that's that's a bit of a change. But a lot of the more contentious reforms um, remain kind of underwhelming. So the voters' role, for example, is that going to be smooth and open and transparent? The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, is that going to be impartial? Is there going to be intimidation? What's the role of the military? Um, is the MDC going to boycott the election? You know, all of these kind of uh, elements need to, to be resolved. But I think, you know, what I'm expecting is this, to fall a bit short of the criteria of free and fair elections, but better than what we've expected uh, in the past. I think also uh, Mnangagwa is very conscious of the international perception towards Zimbabwe. You know, they've just rejoined the Commonwealth. They're looking to re-engage with the Western world. So um, I think there will be some concessions on this on this score. Um, but I think what's important from an investor point of view is that a line in the sand is drawn under this, uh, and then we can start to focus on the de-zonification of Zimbabwe, because effectively it's it's still a militarized state with a democratic facade. Uh, and I think, you know, we need real reform if it's going to unlock the economic potential that that economy has. The de-zonification of a militarized state. That's um, that's a lot of quotes in one line. Ronald Gabaldas, thank you, <laughs> director at Signal Risk this evening, joining us on the line from London. The Money Show, the science of tonight. It's a contentious one, and one I'd love you to participate in if you're in any way involved in the mining industry, whether you are a miner, whether you are a former miner, whether you are somebody who has been watching from the sidelines, whether you work in government or the or, or the industry, whether you're considering digging a hole in the ground with the prospect of taking something out of it, whether you're thinking, well, I was thinking of doing that, but I'm not going to do it anymore. Any of that sort of stuff. I'd love to hear from you this evening on 21 446 because it's the science of the mining charter. Brandon Ersigler is the director at Strata Legal. It's mining charter version three, they call it. But isn't it four? Because the first one was leaked and was as bad as one is when it caused complete havoc in the mining industry. Is this three or four? What is it, Brandon? It's Mining Charter 3. Good evening, Bruce. Um, There was a previous incarnation, also called Mining Charter 3, which was Mr. Zuma Zwane, who put it out for comment, uh, and it was interdicted. 
um, which I think you can gather from that, the, the response from the industry. It was completely impractical and would have destroyed the industry. So in every way, um, this revised Mining Charter 3 is, is, is a great improvement. The first Mining Charter was, what, 17 years ago or thereabouts? Yeah. Yeah, so that was it. Came out with the MPRDA, and its primary focus was to assist in the conversion of your old order mining rights or the mineral rights that you had under the Minerals Act into the new order mining rights, or as they should really probably be called, mining licenses. So that that was the charter. Then, then we had the 2010 charter, that was a um, an indicator from the DME then how they wanted to see the industry further transform itself. And then we got the disastrous Charter 3 in 2017, and we uh, now have a, a much improved Charter 3 in 2018. Okay. Now, summarize, please, if you would, for me, in 30 seconds or less. Um, <laughs> no, you can take a little bit of time. But just the key points, good, bad, and ugly, and um, we can divide them any way you like, of uh, what is contained in the mining charter. It's a, it's a weighty and complex and jargonful document. It is. But having said that, it is a much better drafted document, which lawyers always appreciate. Not so that we can create further complexity or find loopholes where there might be, <laughs> but, but simply so we can advise our clients and, 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 and steer them hopefully in the right direction as to what, they, what their obligations actually are. So it's, it's, it's actually delightful to have a mining charter that looks like it's been drafted or had some legal input. So the first major issue is the once empowered, always empowered issue has finally been almost certainly put to bed. And the Charter th 3 divides its attention between mining rights that were issued before Charter 3 was um, promulgated, and remember this is just a draft for comment, and mining rights that are to be issued after Charter 3. So it spends a great deal of time saying, if you were ever compliant at the 26% level, and even if you are no longer compliant because your partner has exited and it doesn't say because your partner de-empowered themselves at a higher level, but that's implied, I think, you are compliant. And your only obligation is to top up from 26 to 30%. Now, there are a few caveats with that. And the, the first caveat is if you transfer the right, it's back to the beginning. So don't do that. Okay, well, well, explain what is transferring the right. So if I sell a right, so it uses the word transfer, it doesn't say sell or buy. Um, to another party, your continuing recognition doesn't apply any further. So the the new the person taking transfer of the right is going to have to do a thirty percent BE transaction. Right. Okay. But, I got you. But it's important to note that doesn't apply to a change of control of a company that holds a right. So if you sell your shares, you're not going to be in that position. All right. But I mean, so this, this once empowered, always mm. empowered thing is interesting because I had the chat with the chief executive of Vodacom the other day and I said, but you did a B deal previously. He said, mm. well, our charter doesn't provide for once empowered, always empowered. There seems to be a contradiction across different sectors and different industries. And surely we need a standard across business in South Africa. Either once you've been empowered, you're always empowered. Can we really sustainably have different charters with different levels of empowerment? I think in the mining industry, the background and the history and the emotions around it are important to remember. And so the mining charter, in every incarnation, 
reflects the most egregious violations of people's rights. So there's always the fact that black people could not buy equity or hold mining rights. So that's a big issue. Housing is a big issue. Um, uh, social and labor development, employee equity, all the, the iniquities of the past are addressed in, in detail in mining charters. So to answer your question, it is a moving target. It always will be a moving target, I think. Hopefully there's some stability and we reach a point at which we say, okay, this we're happy with the industry as it is. But it must be remembered that there is there has been some internal consistency in each charter. Okay, so once empowered, always empowered is a great positive yes. um, for South African mining companies. There is this thing uh, um, which is called the free carry, the 10% yeah. free carry. This is an allocation within the, the mining charter that any new projects need to incorporate BE partners from communities and, to, and workers and say, here is 10% of the company. You don't have to do anything. Just take the 10% and that is payback for saying to a community we're digging a hole in your land and we we, we may cause some damage and cause some disruption mm. we create some jobs and we'll do all of that sort of stuff but it's a way of dealing with some of the great injustice of the past where communities have been treated as the sixth class citizens in in many of these cases yeah often just as obstructions but uh, first of all the, the term free carry isn't defined in charter three so we have to go to you know, what we traditionally think free carry is, which is, as you say, a percentage of equity, which cannot be diluted. Um, so if there's a capital call, as there often is in mining, because the RAND's gone the wrong way or your commodity is not as profitable as it once was, the, those, those holders of those rights are immune and they can't be diluted. Now, that's not defined. Um, and so that it's almost a guaranteed right to any dividend declaration. So, for example, let's just take a hypothetical case mm-hmm. that this mining charter was in place 10 years ago and Lonman did an empowerment deal and there was a 10% free carry on a Lonman. Mm. And Lonman, as we know, has done rights issue after rights yeah. issue after rights issue. You would have the empowerment shareholders entitled to probably 50% of <laughs> the, the, the profits of Lonman, if not more. I mean, Lonman is so Assuming so there are profits diluted. of Lonman. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, we, we're living in La La Land and <laughs> hypothetically, of course. Um, but, but, but it's just to illustrate the point is when there are rights issue after rights issue after mm. rights issue, um, that 10% free carry has extraordinary consequences. It, it does. And I must say that Lonman is a good client of mine. So um, I apologize to anyone <laughs> from Lonman who's listening. You, you get to miss those guys very, very much. I, I have no intention of missing them. I think they're going to be around for the long term. Um, so, no, so no, they, they, they may be around, but you're not going to the same meetings anymore because you were so rude and unkind to them. Gosh, I hope I am. Uh, still going. But anyway, Bruce, the, the point is, first of all, new projects um, in in terms of definition, that's that's not correct. As long as the mining right is held prior to Charter 3, that's fine. It's okay. new mining rights that are issued. So if you've done your prospecting and, and you're building up towards applying for mining right, you're going to need that 30%. To answer your question on dilution, yes. So I... It's, it's not a nicely defined concept. It's just thrown out there. It's found in one portion of, of an otherwise quite comprehensive document. So I, I don't know if it's a negotiating gambit, you know, if you look at Botswana, they have free carry, but it gets vested into a central repository and the government can then decide if it wants to co-invest 
so as to keep up with its capital contributions and not okay, get Okay, you, you, uh, uh, Brandon, you, mm. you're speaking a foreign language. Um, uh, let's take the, the, No, 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 it's fine. I mean, you, it's a language that you use every single day, but for, for, for schmucks like myself, <laughs> um, we're sitting here going, hold on a second, this is really interesting. I know it's interesting, I just don't understand what you're talking about. Let's talk about it in, in more detail, because I'd love to understand what Botswana has mm. done with this concept of free carry versus what we think South Africa might do and mm. what we can learn from Botswana. But what's very clear to me in this discussion discussion with Brandon Erslinger this evening is he's directed Strata Legal is that there is a huge amount of space for negotiation and discussion and for clarity to be provided. That's the important bit here. Something that under Mosabenz Zwane there was absolutely no room for it all. This is the mining charter which has been tabled uh, on Friday last week. There was a big media conference on Sunday um, with the the, the mineral resources minister Gwede Mantashe um, and uh, the industry has pushed back against some points. We're discussing those points this evening. If you've got any questions or any points you want to raise 011-883-0702 021446 The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Brandon Ersliger is the director at Strata Legal. He's with us this evening. We're doing the science of the mining charter. Um, this idea of free carry. You say Botswana's got this free carry, mm. but the state holds the free carry and then there's lots of um, there's lots of variations on what they can do with it. As the our mining charter stands right now the free carry my elementary understanding is that this is so that we can see communities and workers empowered it, it, it seems as blunt an instrument as that is yeah. it not yeah i think it is but as i said it's it's a one line uh, or a small paragraph and it doesn't really follow through in in, in other aspects the other thing to remember about communities um, and employees is a lot of um, mining employees have benefited under ESOPs already. Whether they're in the money or not is, you know, depends on the commodity again. And communities are benefited um, in terms of uh, a document you have to provide when you submit your mining um, application, which is a social and labour plan. And in there you are obliged to articulate exactly what you're going to do for your community, your upliftment projects, the way you're going to reach out, how you're going to try and employ people in your mine. Um, so that it's not like they're being neglected um, completely at the moment. And there has been, I think, a, a major change in, in mining companies' approach to the communities um, in the past five years. So, yeah, this, this I think came as a surprise uh, to the industry. I mean, it's always within the purview of the minister to make any decision he wishes. Um, but I think it's something that has to be, you know, the knock-on effects, as you point out, using the example you did, is exactly right. There is another area that I'd like to discuss, Bruce, and, and this, I think, has been overlooked in the equity debates and the trickle dividends and the, you know, these, um, these other issues. And that's the way the obligations to empower have been pushed down really heavily on the supply chain. So if you look at goods and services, they have massive or seemingly um, massive obligations in terms of um, acquiring 80%, 70% of your total spend in terms of goods and services from empowered entities, um, or at least level four and 26% um, um, equity, black equity owned entities. And that's the base level. And then going forward into what they call black entrepreneurs, uh, women and youth. And foreign owned um, or controlled suppliers are particularly penalised by having to pay a 0.5% um, t- uh, t- uh, percentage on turnover in terms of their South African business. So, you know, this is going to affect 
the broader mining industry. And this is the second level of transformation that we're seeing because these, these levels of empowered spending are... Uh, I, I think that's the conversation that's not yet taken place and is going to surprise a lot of people who are going to be supplying the industry. Is it not quite a clever mechanism, though? Because if it, it sort of feeds into what Rob Davies is trying to do at the DTI. It seems like a far more cohesive approach. Whether it's smart or not and whether it's fair or not is up for discussion. But it's saying that mining isn't only about extraction. It is all about so much of what goes into the process of mining. It, yeah, and, yeah. and people who supply the mining industry may take offense to it and they can fight their corner. I don't think they should take offense. I think this is the next step in transforming the industry. And, and it's just in, in the debate around, um, important debate around once empowered, always empowered, and these other um, you know, issues that are of direct importance to the Chamber of Mines, who's been doing the negotiations, they're not terribly concerned with um, their suppliers. They're going to pass on this obligation as they should. It is a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. You know, we all said, oh, well, you know, South Africa... Uh, it's uh, mining's not what it was until the cry, you know, until the commodity prices hit, and we realised how much spin-off in terms of banking fees and merchant banks and all sorts of people made money out of transactions and supplying the industry, and this pushes that um, agenda rightly. But it is something that people are going to have to get up to speed with very quickly. Uh, and, I mean, the sort of industries that's going to affect isn't just the people who do the catering. It's not going to affect the people who do the trucking. It's not going to affect just the people who do that. It is goes into absolutely every facet yes. of the economy. It, 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 it's, it's sort of the tentacles reach deep. Yeah, um, and, and the, the mining charter sets out exactly who is a supply of services and who is, you know, what goods are included um, with, with some detail. People have five years to achieve these targets, these 80% and 70% um, empowered spend targets. But there are transitional provisions which have fairly steep year, one year, two year, three, etc. Many, you know, sub-targets within them. Um, and uh, they, you know, it's, 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 going to, it's going to hit. Uh, no one's fighting the supplier's corner saying this is ridiculous because it doesn't really matter too much to the, the as I said to the miners because they'll simply say to their suppliers empower chums um, or lose our business and yeah um, I, I think it's I think it's the broader industry should take note of this of these obligations I mean, it, and it, it has the opportunity of, of a really broad based transformation of South African business and society very briefly is that what is going to be the biggest sticking point what is going to cause the biggest fight um, uh, when it comes to this uh, when it come, when it comes to this charter can I give you three please very so, briefly. You very one briefly. minute <laughs> off we go as we've discussed the um, free carry is going to be an issue the second issue is the trickle dividend um, it's not as bad as it looks, but people need to look carefully at it. The third industry, the third um, issue is the, the board representation and the mandatory um, empowerment, uh, levels of empowerment at the board. Um, I think that's, that's going to really push um, a transformation agenda within, um, you know, the management and, uh, of businesses. And that's, there might be some pushback, but on what grounds, I don't know. 
Brian, thank you very much. Brandon, I beg your pardon. Thank you very much for coming in. He's got a brother called Brian, I'm sure. <laughs> Brandon Herzegler, thank you very much. Director at Strata Legal this evening. Coming, giving us the good, the bad, the ugly, the complicated, and certainly the detail of some of the biggest issues in mining charter version 3. It's going to be a really interesting couple of months as these issues are discussed, negotiated, and moved upon within the mining industry um, as, as we look at the way in which this industry is changing. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual. Investing with Africa for Africa. Listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange on 26 June. Old Mutual. Do great things. Everything you thought you knew about phosphorus is probably wrong. The stuff that you wonder about phosphorus is going to amaze you. It's a critical, it's a critical chemical, actually, without which you would have no vegetables to eat. We'll talk all about that with Colin Cullis, Business Unusual, next time on The Money Show.